Well, before we get started, I'll just make a couple of announcements. You'll notice a couple of pictures up here. The pictures we have are because uh, some of our Internet Sabbath School family uh, joined us. Uh, James Kreider, his wife Julia, daughter Jackie, and son John and friend Kevin all came from the Jasper Church, drove up a couple of hours to join us Saturday night, and they brought these as gifts to our class, these pictures, and framed for us. And you all recognize the picture, I'm sure. This is the picture uh, that is associated with the Good News Tour. And the Good News Tour is going to be going on here in Collegedale at the University Church, uh, March 28 and 29. And, you know, a couple of weeks ago I, I asked uh, as a matter of prayer that you pray about the advertising issues and see whether the Lord would open those uh, doors for us. The, uh, the Hamilton Place Mall advertising uh, has turned us down. They will not allow these in the mall. Uh, I found out that the owner of the organization who actually owns the property, CBL, which is the company, the head chairman of that company is Jewish. So I don't know if that has anything to do with it or not, but it was, I, I did get uh, a report back that, uh, that that company, in addition to the administration there at the mall, said, no, these can't go up in the mall. Uh, the billboard company, however, initially said no, but I sent an email back explaining our mission and what this really is uh, trying to say, and um, the general manager said no. So the uh, person I was dealing with went to their sales manager. The sales manager took the picture, went to his church, and asked several of their pastors what, uh, what they thought of it, and none of the pastors were offended. And so they went to the general manager, and he said, okay, so we're going to have the 20 billboards going up in Chattanooga area with this picture on it. And the billboards are going to say, um, right across the top here will be, a, will be a, uh, some wording that says, would Jesus really do this? And then that'll be half the bill. Run along the side, it'll say, Good News Tour, March 28-29, Southern Adventist University Church, and then a phone number and a website to, to find out information. So 20, starting March 3rd, they're supposed to go up March 3rd. And they'll go the whole month of March and they come down right after the, the weekend. So we're excited about that. I suspect we might get some, uh, some buzz on the local media. Well, let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and study. We ask that your spirit would be with us to enlighten our minds, that as we study, we can see you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. And we are doing lesson number one in our new quarterly called Discipleship. And the lesson title for this week is an overview of discipleship. And as you think about discipleship, what comes to mind when you think about being a disciple? Being a follower. Being a follower? Working for the Lord. Working for so see when we think of disciple, don't we kind of automatically think in our minds disciple of Christ? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. but does it, is that what it means to be a disciple? No. Student. Yeah, follower of a certain person that teaches a certain uh, teaching. Yeah, so any in the teaching of, the, of that person. Exactly. So a follower, a student, a pupil is a disciple. One who is under, under instruction, basically, is a disciple. And so then that leads to the question, whose disciple are we to be? Remember in, in the New Testament, they, they were, Paul was bringing this issue up. Are you a, a follower of Peter or Apollo or, or Paul? Are we a follower of, of Graham Maxwell, of, of uh, the ATS, of Billy Graham, Joel Olstein? I mean, who are we to be following? Christ. Yeah, I mean, there really is one, isn't there? Yeah, do you sometimes have uh, discussions that go, oh, you're a Maxwellian, or, or... No, 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 we're Christians. We're Christians, okay? That's what we are, we're Christians. Then that begs the next question. How can you tell who a true disciple of Christ is? Can you tell by their profession of faith? 
their declaration of being a Christian, their claim of Christianity? No. By the food they eat? No. Or what they drink? Or how they dress? The watch they wear. The watch they wear. Um, So how can you, honestly, seriously, how can we tell? How can we tell, if we can tell? Their actions. Their actions, their behavior. I like that. Christ, all men will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. I just love you guys. You guys are so right on the on the uh, agenda here. Yeah, the methods we use, right? And, and I found this description. I've got a couple, couple passages I want to quote out of a book called Desire of Ages that I thought really summed this up well. Page 644. It says, talking about, uh, we're talking about the methods and how to tell about disciples. And listen to this little description out of the life of Christ right at, right at the, the Last Supper scene. It says, Another cause of dissension had arisen. At a feast, it was customary for a servant to wash the feet of the guests. And on occasion, preparation had, uh, had, had been made for the uh, for this service. The pitcher, the base, and the towel were all there, in readiness for the feet washing. But no servant was present, and in the disciples, and it was the disciples' part to perform. But each of the disciples, yielding to wounded pride, determined not to act the part of a servant. All manifested a stoical unconcern, seeming unconscious that there was anything for them to do. By their silence, they refused to humble themselves. How was Christ to bring these poor souls where Satan could not gain advantage over them? How could he show that a mere profession of discipleship did not make them disciples or ensure them a place in his kingdom? How could he show that it is loving service, true humility, which constitutes real greatness? How was he to kindle love in their hearts and enable them to comprehend that he lo- what he longed to tell them? The disciples made no move toward serving one another. Jesus waited for a time to see what they would do. Then he, the divine teacher, rose from the table, laying aside his outer garment. And you know what he did. He got the basin in the water and he, and he washed their feet. And it says that the disciples goes on to describe how they were convicted and, and ashamed of themselves. Yes? Uh, in the Jewish tradition, the servant who washed the feet was always the very lowest. Any Jew that was a servant or a slave was not even asked to do it. They always had the very, very least of all the servants. Yes, and to do that. And Christ went that low. And in the culture today, what does the bottom of the foot symbolize in, in the Eastern culture today? The middle finger. Insult. Insult. Yes, exactly right. It's like the worst offense. Do you remember when, when Saddam Hussein fell and you saw the statue of Saddam being pulled down? What were all the uh, people doing? They had their sandals and they were smacking it with the bottom of their sandal. That's what they were doing because the bottom of the foot is the worst insult that you could give to somebody. And so Christ in that, in that culture got down and basically took the worst insult and was cleansing you see, was, was, was showing this, this humble attitude. So the method, what method were you seeing practiced by the disciples of Christ? In that story we, we just talked about, what were their methods? <coughs> Self-promotion? Pride? Self-exaltation? Seeking the highest place? Do you remember the conversations on their way to the, to the Last Supper? What were they conversing about? Yes. Yes, and one of them even had their mom come and ask Jesus, remember? Two of them had mom come and ask, hey, can my boys have the right and the left-hand side? Yeah. What, do you think that they understood the, the kingdom of God after three and a half years with them? No, they were still struggling. 
what method do we see revealed by Christ? A completely opposite perspective, don't we? Completely opposite. So, this is uh, the the second two paragraphs I want to read out of the same book, page 677. It says, In the last meeting with his disciples, the great desire which Christ expressed for them was that they might love one another as he had loved them. Again and again he had spoken, These things I command you, he said repeatedly, that ye love one another. His first injunction when alone with them in the upper chamber was, A new command that I give you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. To the disciples this commandment was new, for they had not loved one another as Christ had loved them. He saw that new ideas and impulses must control them, that new principles must be practiced by them. Through his life and death, they were to receive a new conception of love. So something that he was going to do was going to help revolutionize their concept of what love was all about. The command to love one another had a new meaning in the light of his self-sacrifice. The whole work of grace is one continual service of love, of self-denying, self-sacrificing effort. During every hour of Christ's sojourn upon the earth, the love of God was flowing from him in irrepressible streams. All who are imbued with his spirit will love as he loved. The very principle that actuated Christ will actuate them in all their dealings with one another. This love is the evidence of their discipleship. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, said Jesus, if ye have love for one another. When men are bound together, not by force or self-interest, but by love, they show that the working of an influence that is above every other influence, where this oneness exists, it is evidence that the image of God is being restored in humanity, that a new principle of life is being implanted. It shows that there is power in the divine nature to withstand the supernatural agencies of evil, and that the grace of God subdues the selfish, selfishness inherent in the natural heart. So what is it that, how can we tell the true disciples of Christ? Does anybody disagree with that? So then the next question is, how are we doing? How are we doing as his disciples? I suppose, Tim, a self-evaluation would be just how, how are you relating and feeling about some of the challenges in the world? How are you feeling towards others? I was listening to the news yesterday. That, that blast in Pakistan that, that killed 48 people or so, uh, I was just overwhelmed a little bit with, with sadness because of all the hardship and hurt in the world. That, things like that can be indicative, I think, of our relationship with God, seeing the world through His eyes and having the compassion and concerns that He has are, are comforting. Because I suppose we know we're we're becoming a little more like him. This picture is a good litmus test. It really is. I uh, people look at this picture, and some quote Christians unquote become offended. We've had uh, there's over 50 websites now that have this picture on it and are talking and blogging about it. And then it keeps spreading. With three more websites came up this week uh, talking about it, and people get on there and uh, are uh, some some are, are just totally blown away. You can read some of the comments. It's like, wow, it just blows my mind to even think about this. Others, however, get on there and say, my Jesus would never wash Osama bin Laden's feet. He'd rip his still beating heart out of his chest. Okay? See, this is a different concept of Jesus, isn't it? And so, as we read these things, as we look, as we, as, as you say, consider, are we a disciple? Do we love? Does the Christ that is described in the Bible that we see giving his self 
ultimately allowing his own creatures to spit on him and abuse him. Uh, and it's interesting some of the logic people use as you read some of the blogs about this. Well, he only washed the feet of his disciples, those who professed faith in him. He wouldn't wash the feet of people who didn't profess faith in him. Except Judas. Well, he professed faith. Even though he wasn't true, he at least gave the profession of faith. Yeah. Christ didn't really know. Yeah. And others, others will come back, well, Judas betrayed him, and, and he would wash his feet anyway. Uh, but interestingly, at the cross, at the cross, how did Christ treat those who were spitting on him and abusing him and beating him and mocking him and crucifying him? I mean, didn't he have the power if he wanted to stop it? Father, forgive them. They know that way. I mean, he was actively choosing. He said, remember, remember the context. No one can take my life. No one can take it. It's not like the two thieves who once the, the forces that be had power and authority and control and physical possession of their body. The thieves didn't really have much choice at that point. Their, their, their destiny was sealed by other people's intent. But Christ all along the way was voluntarily, no one can take my life. I will give it freely. And he could have stopped it at any time. See, and people don't necessarily consider that. And these weren't his friends. Was he, give, was he giving his life for them as well? Yes. yes. Is it harder to give your life or wash somebody's feet? <laughs> you see? I mean, if he gives his life for I mean, this is really a no-brainer if you understand the context. But people have different ideas about God and Christ, and therefore see and interpret things differently. When yes. the sun went down, I had very little remorse. It surprised me that I could feel those kind of feelings towards a person. There is such a thing as, I guess... Holy anger. Jesus said that. And yet, I suppose there was some sadness. But but him going down out of political power well, I, I, isn't the same thing as him going down as an individual to the pits of hell. I mean, those are two different things. You might be relieved to see someone voted out of office at the next presidential election. Or not. Uh, but that has nothing to do with your, your heart attitude toward them as a human being and where they're going to spend eternity. And so you might see somebody practicing those methods and be very relieved that they're no longer in power. But still long for their redemption and soul. And recognize that as long as they have that power to wield, they may never come to repentance. Right? I think it depends on the, how close you have come to that, how close you've come to that evil that they maybe have <coughs> perpetrated on someone. For instance, if, if your husband had been by his army and killed or something, it would be harder to yes and that shows us the insidiousness of sin itself when somebody has done us wrong I had a, I had a lady here come, come to me at one of the seminars I did at the church a couple of years ago and after the seminar she said uh, she told me how her daughter had, had married a young man and after um, the, they'd gotten married this man began to physically abuse her daughter beat her, blacken her eye knock her around now the lady telling me this you understand had never been physically hit by the man she hadn't even spoken bad, badly to. As some of, the, some of these type people are, uh, publicly he was just so mild-mannered and put on such a good show outwardly. You've heard, heard that happen. But in the home, he would physically knock this woman's daughter around. This woman had incredible amounts of resentment, anger, bitterness, desire to see this man suffer in her heart. She had not been directly sinned against. But this is the insidiousness of sin. The seed had been planted in her heart. If she doesn't deal with it with godly methods, then it will take root. She will become bitter. She will become hard-hearted. And she will eventually become like the person who was beating her daughter. 
And so, yes, it might be harder because of the insidiousness of sin. But there's only one solution for that type of... And Christ showed us that. Father, forgive them. Stephen, you say, well, he was God. He was God. He, he, he could do it. We, we, we aren't expected to really measure that high. Stephen, when he was being stoned, what did he say? Don't lay this against them. Don't lay this against their account. Forgive them. You see? His... The parents of the, those girls in Philadelphia, I mean, Pennsylvania, the Quaker girls that were shot, they, the parents reached out to... The widow. The, uh, the widow of the man that shot their daughters. This is exactly right. Not just the parents, the whole community yeah. reached out to serve. And so, yes, it can be harder, but we are still given a path that leads to healing. And so we are, we are all tempted by our own inherent selfish feelings and our sense of what justice is. And I'm going to tell you right now, our human sense of justice is warped. You know, you killed my child. You see? Well, then, we have every right to hate you. It's our right to hate you and take out vengeance upon you. Because you've hurt me. Yes? I find it interesting that even when you're making an effort to go the extra mile to you know, allow for the forgiveness, uh, the influence of others that accuse you of being nuts because you're trying to extend the olive branch and they're telling you, you know, what's the matter with you? You've got every right to be hating or upset or vindictive or whatever else. And you see this, this distortion of justice in our society, in our political arena, nation against nation. You see it in the Middle East. You see it with the rhetoric coming out of our own political leaders. But Christ has a different type of justice. His justice, we talked about this last time, is predicated on the, His law, and His law is the law of? Love. love. See, when you, when you interpret justice coming or emanating from a law that is self-sacrificing love, then suddenly that justice looks different than the justice we traditionally see in the world. And the problem is, we take our human concept of justice, and we project that onto God, and we create religious themes and religious constructs that have God in heaven required to inflict a penalty, exact payment from his creatures in order for him to be just. And because he loved us, he sent his son to exact payment, a blood penalty from his son in order to be just. Yes? We often look at the Old Testament as being very violent and whatnot, and yet there were cities of refuge. And when the person fled to the city of refuge, he was released at the death of the high priest. Not some payment of anything else. He was released. That's right. And um, the seeds of what you were describing as New Testament theology is, is buried in, in the Old Testament. It's exactly right. The love your neighbor as yourself. The Lord your God with all your heart. It's all in the Old Testament. You're all in love. Love your enemies. That's right. Love your enemies. That's exactly right. But when we, when we universalize the word love, what exactly does that mean? I mean, it covers a broad spectrum. Um, caritas, agape. I mean, we need to spend a little bit of time on what does it mean to really love? What does that mean? 1 Corinthians 13. Love is not self-seeking. Self-seeking. Love is not self-seeking. Love is interested in the welfare of others. Paul says, esteem others more highly than yourselves. Love is beneficent. Love is giving. The principles of love are outward moving, seeking the welfare benefit of others, and willing to sacrifice yourself. Christ said, greater love is no man than he give his life for a friend, which is just the opposite of that other principle of the devil, which is survival of the fittest. Christ's principle, I love you so much, I'll do whatever I can to help you, build you up, protect you, including if it comes down to it, give my life that you might live. 
at war with the opposite principle in this planet, survival of the fittest, which says I love myself so much, I'll do whatever I have to to protect, advance myself, including, if it comes down to it, kill you that I might live. But that picture is indicating that Christ accepts, has died for him, I mean, offered him the gift of eternal life. That's what it says to me. It doesn't mean that he approves of what he's doing. No, I didn't say that he did. And I'm not saying that, but is that why some people are having a problem with it, perhaps? No, I think that some people have a problem with Christ accepting, Christ loving people who don't show interest in him. That God, God, God is, and, and this, is the, this is what you hear classically in Christianity. God is love, but he is also justice. justice. You, you've heard it. Which implies that somehow justice is something different than love. love. Or there's some part of God that is other than love. He's love and he's also something else we call just. But what is the, where do you find that in the Bible? No. Where is the only qualifying definition of the true character of God? What is it? God is love. You will never find it in the Bible saying God is justice. justice, even though he is just. Or God is forgiveness, even though he's forgiving. Or God is kindness, even though he's kind. Or God is patience, even though he's patient. You won't find it. God is love. Everything else subsumed under the character of love. And the reason they have to split this off is because the view of justice that they project upon God is not love. It is the human vengeance that they want to exact because somewhere, as you said back there, we have been harmed, we've been hurt. We have some idea that we're not supposed to take vengeance ourselves, but yet we want to see them pay, don't we? And yet it says, Yes, and so we claim, we claim that text, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and therefore we know that God will take vengeance and He will make them suffer worse than we can. Be up there on the wall laughing right along with us. Yes. They burn in hell. That's what some think. But they don't understand the vengeance text, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. When the Lord has His way, if you, if you have somebody who's done you harm, like you know somebody who's beat your, your, your daughter, and you put that, that man in God's hands and say, God... You take care of him. Let your will be 100% done in his life. What would happen? Repent. He would be transformed. He would be healed. He'd, be, he'd have a new heart and a right spirit. He'd become a loving person who would, who would give his life to protect others. He'd become your friend. Well, no, I don't want that. That's not right. Forget that. I want to see him suffer. He beat my daughter. You beat him up, Lord. Don't, don't transform him. Don't heal him. You see, we have this warped idea in our minds about what justice is, because we also have warped ideas about God's law, and we think God's law is some, some set of rules he set up that he then has to enforce externally rather than inherently. And, and I'll just, just go over it real quick. Five, there are five basic laws, basic sets of laws that govern our health. And, and what is sin? Transgression of the law, or living outside of law. Let me, let me show you the five basic laws. They're the laws of health. You know, like breathing, hydration, nutrition. These are the laws of health. You don't have to believe in them. Put a plastic bag over your head. See what happens. Okay? If you do that, if you violate this law of health, of respiration, is God going to send an angel down from heaven to inflict a penalty upon you to make you pay for that? No, he doesn't have to, does he? Okay, the laws of nature, like the law of gravity. Different type of law. Governs our health. If you step off a building, is God going to send an angel down to inflict a penalty upon you for, for violating this law? He doesn't have to. The law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. It's a, it's a principle of, in psychiatry called modeling. But we assimilate or become like what we, what we worship. If you decide to worship a frog, esteeming it highly, wanting to become like a frog or a rat, which some people do, 
and your mind becomes darkened, warped. Is God sending angels down to, to do this to you? No, it's a natural consequence. The law of liberty, which we've talked about before, violates somebody's freedoms. Uh, when, uh, when you're dating somebody or you're in a relationship with somebody, tell them if they don't love you, you will beat them till they do. <laughs> what happens? You see, love is destroyed. A desire to rebel is instilled. You cannot have love in an atmosphere without freedom. It's a law. It's testable. If you don't believe me, try it out on the person you love. See what happens. God, does God have to send an angel down to ruin a relationship when you take away freedom? He doesn't have to do it. It's automatic. Love is destroyed. And then the final law is the law of love itself, which is the principle of beneficence, the circle of giving, which everything in, which is really the secret base code of life. All nature has this principle in it. And we see, and we've gone through this many, many times before, but it's the principle of, uh, of as you give your breath to the trees, they give oxygen back to you. If you don't want to give freely, if you want to hold on to every molecule of carbon dioxide that your body makes, because you're not going to be a giver, well, you can do that. The only way to do it is to stop breathing and to die. This is the principle of life, this principle of love, this principle of giving. These are the five laws. Now, if you violate that principle, if you violate the law of love, does God have to inflict the penalty upon you? No. The wages of sin is death. Sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. James chapter 1. This is an inherent consequence. God does not have to inflict death. It's automatic. In fact, when you really understand these laws... God has been working, using his power, we call it intercession, interceding with the deadly destructiveness of sin, keeping us alive artificially. This is an artificial environment on this planet. This is not the environment of the rest of the universe. God is artificially sustaining us by his grace, giving us opportunity. You put the plastic bag over your head, and God artificially cuts a trach and puts you on a ventilator to keep you alive while you figure out you really shouldn't have a plastic bag over your head. Okay? This is what's happening on this planet. God is sustaining the universe. You jump off a building, God suspends you in his hand in midair, giving you an opportunity for him to put you through a window so you won't die. But if you won't let him, he withdraws his hand eventually at your insistence. He doesn't have to do anything. The consequence to your choice results in your eternal destiny. This is the reality of God's justice. He gives us all freedom. His universe is a universe of love. And our choices determine our eternal destiny. He doesn't have to inflict death upon anybody. It happens. He has to stop holding it at bay. And that's what he's been doing. Somebody read Sabbath's lesson. Man, we haven't even got to Sabbath's lesson. Sabbath's lesson, the, the entire day. Because there's so many good things I want to go through, so we're going to have to kind of pick it up. Why Stevenson tells a story from the days of the conquistadors that illustrates an important aspect of discipleship. Quote, when Cortez disembarked his 500 conquistadors upon the eastern shore of Mexico, he set fire to his ships. As his warriors watched the means of the of retreat go up in flames, they knew that they were committed. They were committing their lives to the conquest of the new world for Spain. They had to be totally dedicated to the mission. In the same way, those who accept Christ and commit to the task of discipleship are called to burn their ships in the harbor. There is no room for retreat. There is no turning back. The motto of this complete surrender to Christ should be, quote, forever, forward ever, backward never. And so my question is, what causes people who have started the walk with Christ to turn back? Do people ever turn back? Yeah. Why do people turn back? They take their eyes off Christ. Look at themselves. She says, take their eyes off Christ and look at self. They believe in a false Christ. Okay. They believe in a, they, they have been 
given a conception, a religion, a construct of God that, that is untrue. And so they turn back because as they walk that path, they don't find the actual healing and regeneration because they believe the false system of religion. Does that happen? Disillusionment. How about that? Do people become disillusioned? How can somebody become disillusioned with Christ? Yes? I don't, excuse me. I don't think you have to believe in a false sense of, uh, or a false religion either. You can believe in all the right things. Absolutely. You know, the Ten Commandments, as they're written right down the line, understand the concept. But if you don't understand how it relates to loving people or loving God, you made an image out of the Ten Commandments. Then it becomes a false religion. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So... This disillusionment thing, I've seen, I've seen, and, and just think about the people that you've known in your life who have turned back, who have turned back. I've seen people who have a somewhat rules-oriented religious construct, and they have this idea that if you do everything right, if you pay your tithe, if you go to church on the right day, if you, you know, eat the right foods, if you do all the right things, then things will turn out right. People believe that. And then when things don't turn out right, they become discouraged or disillusioned or don't believe that God really is there because they have got this idea in their mind that if you do the right things, then everything turns out right on this planet. What do you all think about that idea? Well, Jesus did a lot of right things, didn't he? Yes. They're not real good for him. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Have you ever known people like that? Yes, I've known people like that, many people like that, who worked, worked, and see, they put so much energy in, so much effort, it was so hard to keep all those rules. And then when it didn't turn out, they were angry. They were mad. And do you think God maybe allowed some of the realities of the world to impact upon them, not to make them suffer, but to wake them up that they were on the wrong path to start with? Yes? um, your, Your relationship with God is indeed truly a relationship. And just like we can grow or neglect human relationships, we can also neglect or our divine relationship. Okay. And we can grow out of that. We become married to someone, and then we do not take the attention and time and everything to maintain that relationship and to grow in that relationship. We're either growing toward or away from an individual in a relationship. And so remember the parable of the sower. The seed was sown, but the busyness and cares of the world took us away from attending to the relationship and and eventually it withered and died. Yeah, that's a good one. How about fear? Do people turn back based on fear? Fear of loss, fear of rejection, fear of job loss, fear of family stress, what others will think, those types of things. Cost of discipleship. How about they never genuinely were committed in the first place? Like Judas. Was he ever really committed? No, I don't think he was. He never was. All right, Sunday's lesson. We're moving fast now. I went through a whole day. Sunday's lesson. Somebody read the second paragraph on the personal level, that paragraph. On the personal level, discipleship refers to the encounter that occurs between Christ, the transformed individual, and the world. It refers also to the challenges that Christian commitment brings into the resultant life of faith. Thus, discipleship involves not only what a Christian does on behalf of Christ, but how Christ is represented in the world. And so think about that last phrase, how Christ is represented in the world. Now, those who take the name Christian upon themselves say that they are followers of Christ. 
that we are here to represent Christ. Does everyone who professes to be a Christian represent Christ genuinely? So I want you to, to, to give me examples first of how Christ is misrepresented by Christians in the, in the world. And then we're going to come about how Christ is genuinely represented. How is Christ misrepresented in the world? Yes. Coercive Christians sort of beat people over the heads with it and say, you don't have, you know, this is the only way, believe now or be lost. How about, how about Protestant and Catholic wars throughout history? Northern Ireland. Nor, Northern Ireland. Yeah, but how about Protestant and Catholic throughout history? Both claiming Christ. Both killing each other. Does that represent Christ? The Crusades. The Crusades throughout history. Does that represent Christ? People who say about that Christ in the, in the picture, the Christ I serve would rip his heart out, not wash his feet. That, that certainly not representing Christ. Right? How about Christians who attack abortion clinics with bombs and guns? Oh, wow. Is that representing Christ? No. Or Christians who gossip about coworkers. Okay. Hey, hey, now, you've gone from preaching to meddling, okay? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Those who gossip and spread rumors to hurt reputation, absolutely. How about uh, picketing the uh, homosexuals and protesting them? How about uh, somebody said seeking coerce? How about doing that through political means? Christians who are using Christianity to gain political power. Is that representing Christ? Do we find Christ and his disciples trying to gain political power, trying to influence the government of Rome, the governors of Rome, the Senate of Rome at all, ever? No. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my followers were, would fight. No, it's not the kingdom. The kingdom of Christ seeks to change the heart, not the laws of the land. How about Christians who discriminate? Or abuse their family, spouse, children. You ever heard of deacons, elders, pastors, priests who abuse kids? Mm-hmm. They're representing Christ. It's a sad commentary as we can go through so many of these, isn't it? Christians who preach as a means to get wealthy. Ever happened? Yes. Or how about preachers or Christians who actively spread false conceptions of God. Does that happen? Yes. All right, so we've gone through a whole long list. And then we wonder why those who are not Christian in the world, maybe the Islamic folk out there, or other Hindu or Buddhist or other people who, who don't know about Christ, do we have any wonder why they have a hard time valuing Christianity? After all, and I, I just went through a partial list. Not just those people, but what about our children? Okay, our, cho- our own children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about genuine Christianity now. And I want you to think, as we're giving these examples, if this was the only way Christianity was ever seen, what impact it might have. Give some examples. One example is already given by Russell when he mentioned the Amish family, uh, which was Marion and Barbie Fisher. If you remember last year when the gunman came into that school to sh- and, and th- threw everybody out except the 10 little schoolgirls, and when he went to shoot them, 13-year-old Marion stood up and said, shoot me first and let the other ones go. And he did. He shot and killed her. As soon as she hit the ground, her 11-year-old sister stood up and said, shoot me next. Let the other ones go. Is that representing Christ? 
kids. Yeah, wow, that's powerful. And then afterwards, the families would say, which, which pour out and, and have, have a, take up a collection for the wife and child of the man who killed their, their kids. If Christianity looked like that all the time, do you think it might be more impactful in society? Unconditional love. Unconditional love. Charities which seek to genuinely relieve hunger, poverty, disease. So we're we showing our children that unconditional love to what they make choices with and things like that. So we need to bring it back home a little bit more. Are we showing Christ's love despite what they do? Yeah. And uh, does that mean that in love you always do what they will agree is loving? No. Yes, and see, in love, as a parent, since you want to bring it back home, does a parent take a child to get vaccines in love to protect the child? From the 12-month-old or 14-month-old perspective, as you're holding them there and they're jabbing needles in the legs, what's their perspective on this loving act? Why are you torturing me? Why are you punishing me? Why are you hurting me? Don't you love me, Mommy? Might they misunderstand? And there's a principle there. That genuine love is willing to risk being misunderstood to do what's best for others. And that's how we can understand much of what happens in the Old Testament when God is interceding, thundering, uh, raising his voice, so to speak. Oftentimes he risked being misunderstood to do what was loving, to protect. Well, love will do that as well. How about in our community? Can our community show a sense of unity and trust and fidelity and love for each other here, locally, that can reveal Christ. Any thoughts about how, as a class, we can do that better? We need to help the momentum of um, our preparation for the Good News Tour. Coming together as a, as, a, as a group with a common purpose, a common focus, a common desire to uplift Christ and make him known by our, not just our words, but our also actions and deeds in the community. Okay. Do we share a common vision? Do we share a common understanding of God and his character and methods? I hope we do. And I hope we're coming closer all the time. You know, it's interesting, uh, Dobson went to see, I think it was Ted Bundy, and over the radio he announced that, that he'd given his heart to the Lord, and he was actually getting death threats over that. People upset with him for visiting and stating that he'd become a Christian. Yeah, at uh, the uh, execution of Ted Bundy, the night of the execution, uh, Christians had turned out to the, to the uh, prison where he was being executed and were chanting, Burn, Bundy, burn. Burn, Bundy, burn. For the, for the cry, and they, and they were interviewed by a news person, and, 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 and uh, they said, some of the Christians said, uh, for the crimes that he committed, it's not fair that he will suffer such a short time in the electric chair. But we praise God that we serve a God who will burn him in hell forever. Okay, is that the same God we see in the picture here? You see, those Christians are going to have trouble with this picture. You see? And that's an important thing. Um, We keep in our mind, not everybody who professes Christ is worshiping the same God. Taking his name in vain. (laughs) They're taking his name in vain, yeah. Monday's lesson. Somebody read the first paragraph in Monday's lesson. The word disciple comes from the Greek word meaning learner, apprentice, or adherent. 
It depicts a person whose mind is set on a purpose. In the New Testament, it is used mostly of Jesus' disciples, especially in the Gospel. It refers to an apprentice or pupil attached to a teacher or movement, one whose allegiance is to the instruction and commitments of the teacher or movement. A disciple, then, is a pupil or learner who is apprenticed to a master or teacher for the purpose of receiving instruction. There can be no disciple without a teacher. The New Testament term disciple is used primarily of Jesus' disciples. There can be no disciple without a teacher. Christ is our teacher. So the question, what is the primary lesson the primary truth, the primary subject matter that Christ came to teach us about. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. There you go. The truth about God himself. This is the primary subject matter. Christ said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, Father, I have finished the work you have given me to do. I have made you known unto men. The primary subject, when you look at Christ, that we are to be learning... And we're to be asking, what does this say about the Father? Are we asking that question? And if you've had trouble with that lesson, and in fact, I'd like someone from the class, what have you learned from Christ about the Father? He's our instructor. He's our teacher. He's teaching us about the Father. What has he taught us about the Father? He loves us as much as Christ does. He loves us as much as Christ does. Excellent. Where, and where do we find that, by the way? John, chapter 16. 26 and 27. That's exactly right. Yes. Yes. John 17 says he loves us as much as he loves Christ. That's exactly right. He loves us as much as he loves Christ. Hebrews 1, uh, express image of God. Hebrews 1, verse 3. Christ is an exact representation of the Father. That's exactly right. So do you find that when you look and think of the Father, that you think only of the characters revealed in Christ? Or do you have other ideas? Now, if Christ is exa- if the Father is exactly like Christ, do we need Christ to plead to the Father in our behalf? No. If God is for us, who can be against us? In Romans chapter 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his son, but gave him up, how will he not also with him give us all things? Exactly right. God was in the Son, reconciling the world to himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. I mean, are we convinced that the Father himself loves us? Or does the Father need persuading? Why do we have constructs in every brand of Christianity. Either you have Christ up there pleading the Father, or you have Christ marrying all the saints up there pleading the Father. It doesn't matter. We have the same construct. The Father needs some persuasion. If we have that idea in our mind, then do we believe what Christ said? And we'll, we can read that in John chapter 14, when Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Show us the Father. Please, just show us what, what the Father's like. Reveal him to us. And Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, they are not my words. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing the work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe the evidence of the miracles themselves. I mean, can he speak it any plainer than that? Yet, today, do we still as Christians struggle with this truth, seeing the Father differently than we see the Son? Mm-hmm. Yes? What that reveals to us, Dr. Jennings, is the power of a lie. Yes. 
because if you believe that the lie is true, you start from an assumption that is totally false. So obviously the premise that follows it is going to be totally false, and you become persuaded in that by virtue of the fact that in focusing on self, you completely miss the altruistic character of God. That's exactly right. And it uh, gives me an opportunity uh, to plug my blog. If anybody, <laughs> No, actually, I put up a new blog last night on our website, and it was The Power of a Lie. This is the blog last night. And a uh, story in the news right now today, yesterday, I was uh, checking the news, and uh, a man named John White, is, his, his, his future is held right now in the balance of a jury who's deliberating what's going to happen in his future. He admits to shooting his son's friend, their neighbor, and friend of the son, he shot and killed him. What happened? A lie was told. Here's what happened. A friend of, of John's son, John's son's name's Aaron, he had another friend, and that friend got on, on Aaron's MySpace account and sent a message from Aaron's MySpace account to a young girl threatening to rape her. Now, under testimony, this person who did this said in court that he did it as a practical joke. When the girl got the threatening message, she told one of her friends, the neighbor to John White, Aaron's, Aaron's neighbor and friend, uh, was, was told, uh, got this message. He believed that this was a true threat. So he got three of his friends together, called Aaron, threatening him, telling him he was coming over to kill him. They came over. Aaron woke up his dad, John. They got up, as the four men approached the house, they went out on the porch, and he shot and killed the neighbor. Whoa. See, the neighbor thought he was protecting his female friend who was threatened with rape. John thought he was protecting his son who these guys were coming to kill. And all of it occurred because of a lie that was told. Nobody took the time to practice godly methods. Nobody took the time to step back and say, let's pursue the truth. What's the truth? Nobody took the time to practice love. Let's, let's not act in self-interest. Let's not act to use the power over, destroy others, crush the person who's against me method. Let's use a method of humbly giving ourselves to protect others. Nobody tried that method. And so we see the progression in this very story. What happens when a lie is told? Lies believed, and we all know this now, lies believed do what? Destroy. Break the circle of love and trust. You see, Aaron, the guy who got shot was Aaron's friend. But the friend of Aaron believed the lie. And so as soon as he believed the lie, the circle of trusting friendship was broken. He no longer trusted Aaron as his friend now. He, believed, he was now afraid of Aaron, afraid Aaron was going to rape his teenage friend, female friend. The lies believed break the circle of love and trust. Adam and Eve believed lies in the Garden of Eden. The circle of love and trust with God was broken. They no longer trust God. They're afraid of him. And rather than allowing God to look out for the future, they then had to look out for their self and so lies believed break the circle of love and trust. Broken love and trust result in fear and selfishness. Fear and selfishness result in destructive acts, what we call sins, the behaviors that we do, which are the third step down in the process. And those sins result in pain, suffering, and death. It's a terminal condition. Without intervention, this is our, this is our situation. We're infected with this. And we so naturally believe the lies. We so naturally, instinctively want to rise up to protect self, to crush others, to get our way. And that's the change that Christ wants to work in us. He wants to remove that heart that seeks to hurt others and replace it with a heart that seeks to love others. That's what God's working to do. In the middle section of Monday's lesson, it talks about discipleship. 
And it says that discipleship involves the willingness to follow the commands and make commitments. And as you think about that, Jesus said in John 16, 26, I say not unto you, how's it go? That I will plead the Father in your behalf. He's not going to pray the Father for us. I, I will not pray the Father for you. John 16, 26, you get your Bibles out, you look it up. This is Jesus' own words. I'm not going to pray the Father in your behalf. Why? He tells you. Because the Father himself loves you. Now, if we're going to obey Christ, if we're going to follow his commands, we're going to be obedient to him, then shouldn't we believe what he tells us? Shouldn't we teach what he teaches? then how come almost all of Christianity has Jesus pleading the Father for us when Jesus himself said he wouldn't do it? Because basically we still believe the lie that um, Satan to Eve in the Garden of Eden, he doesn't have your best interest at heart. He's keeping something from you that's from, for your own good. And so basically after all these years, we still feel like God really doesn't have our best interest at heart, mostly his at heart. That's exactly right. And therefore we have a God construct like that, then we have to have an advocate. We have to have a friend in court. Remember, the, remember, how many books have you read? We've got a friend in court. And who's our friend? <laughs> and who's he pleading with? God. Because God is not our friend. You see the implication. God is not our friend. Jesus is our friend. How do you think that makes Jesus feel when he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? Ken. You know, Jesus also said at one point, be, be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. All right? So, somehow we've exchanged the idea of, of a God who loves us for a God that is perfect. And therefore, unless we feel perfect, we have to have either Jesus or Mary or the saints or you or somebody else who prays well or whatever stand in between us. Because we don't trust the Father. We have those ideas in our mind. And, and, and the whole Bible is filled with this. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, uh, through verse 28, those ten, verse, those 10 verses there, Paul tells you six times the problem is that the knowledge of God has been rejected. They've exchanged the knowledge of God for images of mortal man, birds, reptiles. They, they pref- they've, uh, have not valued or, or preferred the knowledge of God. They've exchanged it for all this. And he tells you then what happens. The mind becomes darkened, they become fools, and the mind becomes depraved. In Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, it says that, that we as Christians war with weapons that aren't worldly weapons. Our weapons demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. John 17, 3 says, life eternal is knowing God. I mean, the key to all of Christianity is the truth about the Father. Amen. And we have misrepresented it. With Christian teachings, yes. Is there a biblical answer to this problem of intercession? And I think there is. And it's Zechariah 3 where the picture is painted so beautifully that the intercessor between us and the accuser is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why can't we accept that little simple proof? Because we still have lies about God in our mind. That's exactly right. All right, in the bottom of Monday's lesson, it talks down here about... um, It says, in the New Testament, a disciple was one whom Jesus taught and who was committed to following him. So somebody who's committed to doing God's will. Is there anything more dangerous in this world than somebody who's on a mission for God but doesn't know the truth about God? Is there anything more dangerous than that? No. You see, there are many people who are committed to following God or Allah or however you call him, and they're willing to give their lives 
But when you're committed to following the will of God, but you actually don't know God, wow, that's some of the most dangerous stuff you'll ever see in this world. Tuesdays. Um, lesson. Boy, in fact, we're going to skip Tuesday because we're running so short on time. We're going to go to Wednesday's lesson. Wednesday's lesson. Oh, boy. First four paragraphs in Wednesday's lesson. I don't think we're going to have time to to read it all. Um, But it talks about a willingness. And we need to read some of the words, I guess. It says, um, thus a disciple is one who willingly follows Christ. And you must follow him willingly. A willingness to follow and faith to believe uh, must have uh, led to the the positive response. And, and, And my thoughts about that are, did Judas follow Christ willingly? Yes. Or was he coerced, forced, or pressured into it? Did he do it of his own free will? Yes. Yes, he did. Was he considered a disciple by everyone? Yes. Was he sent out with the 70 to do all the things that they did? Why did Judas follow? See, is it possible to follow Christ willingly and still not be a true disciple? Yes, it's the motives. If your motives and reasons are wrong, what happens to you? So what are some of the motives that people will follow Christ for? And, and I'm, and I'm going to just run through these real fast. Fear. Do people follow God or Christ out of fear? Fear that if you don't, he's going to burn you in hell forever. Fear that you're going to get punished in this life or the next if you don't follow him. And if you follow Christ based on fear, what kind of a follower or disciple do you become? Say that louder. Yes, ultimately, this is a violation of the law of liberty. Imagine in your spousal relationships. Imagine in your friendship relationships. If you begin threatening people and uh, to be loyal and faithful to you based on fear, that if they don't, that you will hurt them, you will punish them. If that happens, what will happen in the heart? You'll be a rebel. Yes. Uh, how about, do people follow Christ for status, for position in society, for political gains, for other, other self-centered reasons? Do people follow Christ? What kind of disciple does this make? Like Judas. Yeah. Do, do people follow Christ because of love for someone who raised them? Yes. My grandma, I couldn't hurt my grandma, so I go every week. I, I got baptized so my grandma would feel good, because my grandma was the sweetest lady you'd ever met. What kind of disciple does that make? And then there are those people who follow Christ because of an intelligent love for God himself. And and is there a difference in discipleship? You see, there can be lots of reasons people follow Christ, but it turns us into different types of followers, different types of disciples, different types of beings. And what happens to our character over time? Oh yeah, that one too. Yeah, following Christ because they're wanting the pie in the sky? Yeah, wanting that crown in heaven? It depends on what you're committed to. Thursday's lesson, following up with, finishing up Thursday's lesson, um, the last paragraph in Thursday's lesson. It says, If discipleship as previously seen involves a clean break with the past, then out of necessity it must inspire a vision for the future. The disciple envisions being with the master, learning from him, and becoming like him. Uh, Mark 3.14 says that disciples were called to be with, with him. There is no way, there is no way that a disciple can be with Jesus and not learn from him and not be inspired to be like him. As I read that, I thought, hold on, is that an absolute truth? What about Lucifer in heaven? Was he inspired in God's very presence to be like God? No. Or did he become just the opposite of God? And then Judas, who spent three and a half years in Christ's presence, did it result in Judas becoming more like Christ? 
And, and I want to spend a moment talking about this. How can that be? Did Judas see different evidence than the other disciples? Or did he see the same exact evidence? The same exact revelation of character, same exact miracle, same exact words, same exact attitude, same exact love for others. Yet, how is it that he didn't get transformed by it? Because he interpreted the evidence differently. When he saw Christ get down on his knees and wash disciples' feet, he wasn't brokenhearted. He thought this was weak. He thought Christ was naive. He thought Christ was short-sighted. He was not looking for a loving, generous, and beneficent God. He was looking for a powerful God with a strong arm to throw off the Roman yoke and make everyone rich who followed him. And so he interpreted the events in ways that caused despite in his heart for Christ. Imagine a man brings roses to his wife. The wife can respond by, Oh, sweetheart, I love you so much. Or she can respond by, Okay, what have you done? I mean, the same act can be interpreted two ways, can it? You see? Are we free, regardless of all the evidence God has given us about His goodness, about His grace, about His love as revealed in the life of Christ, to misinterpret the evidence and draw false conclusions? And this is what's happened primarily at the cross. The cross is the revelation of God's self-sacrifice. It reveals the truth about his nature, about his character, about his use of power, that he doesn't use power to coerce and force people, about the nature and character of sin, or exposes the devil for the liar and fraud he has. All this revelation is there, but the devil twists it, and we take it and misinterpret it as... God was punishing his son at the cross. God was executing his son at the cross. God was inflicting justice upon his son at the cross. And thus we take the very same evidence that would lead us back to trust in Christ and we turn and create an entire construct that leaves us afraid of God and thank we have Christ to protect us from him. The same evidence, misinterpreted, turns us from God's enemies, from his friends, into his enemies. And thus it's our job to see the evidence for what it is in the light of the truth of Christ's life and then take that evidence out to a world to free minds and set them, tr- set them free to a true knowledge of God. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have provided the evidence and you sent your Spirit to help us discern rightly. As we open our hearts and minds, all of us come with certain preconceived ideas, certain traditions, certain old ways of viewing things that we need help overcoming. Help us step back and ask the critical questions. Enlighten our minds that we can see the truth as revealed in Christ and recognize that you are just as Christ revealed you to be and we don't need anyone to protect us from you. We need someone to deliver us from sin and sinfulness. We open our hearts now, ask for that healing that we can go out and represent you. Lighten this world that we can see you coming soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.